Today's episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the all-in-one daily drink to promote better health and peak performance. We here at Swisper know that even with a balanced diet, it's difficult to cover all your nutritional bases. That's where Athletic Greens will help. With its complex blend of 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, it is no common drink, but straight up nutritional insurance for your body delivered right to your doorstep. And let's be honest, you can't really take off as an entrepreneur if you don't have the right fuel. I myself use Athletic Greens first thing in the morning. One simple scoop in a glass of water means my energy levels stay consistently high throughout my day. Athletic Greens tastes delicious, and it manages to do so while containing no more than one gram of sugar and being compatible with any diet you can imagine. Vegan, paleo, keto, you name it. So if you're ready to become the entrepreneur of your dreams, head on over to athleticgreens.com slash to claim our special offer today and receive a free D3K2 wellness bundle with your first purchase. That's up to a one year supply of vitamin D. Very important for the coming winter months. And you know what's also winter essential? Listening to Swisspreneur. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com slash And now on with the show. Talk to as many people that you possibly can. Don't be afraid that anyone is going to steal your idea. Idea is 2%. 98% is execution. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Tobias, a very warm welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here and to have this conversation and looking forward to your tricky questions. Same here. <laughs> You're the co-founder and CEO at Sherpany, a software that supports effective processes and also fosters an agile meeting culture. So we're going to talk all about that, all about your startup company. But first, we want to start with your personal background. You studied law, so you have a master's degree of laws from the University of Zurich. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. That would actually <laughs> be my first question. Why did you choose to uh, study law and not business to, in order to become an entrepreneur? Well, for me, I think it was, uh, I mean, I, uh, I did my entire um, uh, A-levels and also my uh, matura, um, all focused on natural science or on science. So I did a C, C matura. Um, and then it was like sort of obvious that I would go to study engineering, any kind of something at ETH in engineering. And back then I was like, that, that's just like too straight. That's like too, too obvious. So I was looking around, uh, checking some, some ideas. Business for me was not interesting enough because to me it was a lot of just common sense. And I connected very easily to the, to the business questions. So it didn't seem the right challenge. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's easy, but I say it's, it wasn't the right challenge for me. Um, and then I, I had some discussions with law and with people from, from the legal uh, part. And uh, uh, then I decided, that, let's do that. Let's study that. Now, looking backwards, I would say I would not do that again. I would definitely uh, go for engineering because I think I had uh, then later on during my course that a couple of times where I had to catch up on like deep technical understandings because it just simplifies if you have a better understanding of technology and how it really works 
to imagine yourself what is possible and what is not possible or what could be done in which way. Uh, that definitely helps also when you think about a business and when you want to connect ultimately business with technology, because that's where often problems happen that you have business people thinking that tech is easy and uh, have ideas and then they come and say, oh, it's actually not that yeah, easy. Yeah, or that should be possible. Or I mean, it's obvious that it's not so difficult, but it is. <laughs> you talked about the, that the business knowledge came easy to you. And where did that come from? Did you have like any family background that led to that? Uh, not really. Um, my mom is a teacher for uh, linguistics, for English and German. And uh, my dad is a technical mechanic. So he works in, in engineering part, but he didn't study. He was just like a, a applied, how do you say? Apprenticeship, uh, what he did. Um, so no really be real business background in, in my family. If I go back one generation or two generations, there are a lot of entrepreneurs um, um, in our family history. But I was never really exposed to those, uh, nor did I really have contact or touch with them. So there might be something in our family in terms of genes somewhere, but in terms of my, my education and how I grew up, I didn't have much contact with that. So I don't really know where it comes from. Um, however, I, I have two things that, that I did very early. One thing was I started to work very early uh, because just to me, it was much more interesting than going to school. Uh, and I did a, a huge variety of different things from plumber to working on constructions to working um, in services, in restaurants. Like I did about 14 different um, uh, kind of works between 13 and 21. Um, I was working on construction. I was a... I was a driving diggers, um, I, was, uh, I, I was driving uh, trucks. Um, so I did a lot of different things. I think that was something that generally just opened up my mind in things like there's nothing that is not possible uh, to just do. Um, and I think that was one part where I very early learned that actually if you just start doing it, you're gonna figure it out and you're gonna have people that help you to learn and to evolve. Um, so I think there is like the respect of doing something yourself or the fear of failing in doing something was just extremely reduced, I think, through that experience. Um, and the second part and coming to business, I think it, it, uh, it came very natural to me because I earned my own money very early that I also started to deal with that. How, how do I earn money? What, what am I going to do with it? What I'm spending for, what I don't spend for. Um, and therefore I started very early to sell like anything, like things that I just was trying to sell. I started like on, on the street where I was living. I made like this little stand where I started already like selling coffees on Saturdays or making croissant uh, just to earn some money on the street. Wow, that's a really great story. <laughs> And that eventually also led you to start your first company, TNC Security. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about, you know, how that happened? Because that still happened before you actually finished, finished your master's degree. Yeah, it was actually before I even finished my school. Uh, it was, I was about 19 back then when I started it. Um, or 18. 
18 or 19. Just old enough to start your own legal yeah, company. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, this happened uh, out of, I think, three three points. One was that um, uh, I was I was doing martial arts for, for many years, uh, for over two decades uh, now. And, and then I come just into the security industry and people say, can you help out? And like when I was 16 or something, like, yeah, can, can you help out here? We have like these kiddie parties or stuff like that. <laughs> Um, and then I thought, okay, we can do that. And then my second experience was that, that I, in, in different places where I worked, I had my personal impression was there was a lot or very little cons- concept behind security work back then, where I was like, we're way doing, or security is, should be about prevention, but it's very little trained to actually be preventive and to act preventive. Starting very simply with the appearance, how people are dressed, how they interact. And there I thought, I mean, this must be possible to do different, to do better. Um, And that's how I then started and said, I made a a simple concept and I started by just how I select people. I select people that, or I started to select people that can talk. If you want to make prevention, then you need to be able to talk. Ideally in different languages, because you're going to have uh, cultural mixes in different uh, parties. And then how I dressed people. We were the first one that we started to dress people in suits. Um, and not just black suits and like no glasses. Like just little things like just be, be normal, be, be kind. Sure. Um, and I think that had, had a good success. And then people saw how we do it. And so we started building a business around. Um, and yeah, and then the, the biggest learning out of that was what, what is also now for Sherpany was that I was always um, sad actually about because it's a very tight, low margin industry. You know, you're, I mean, everyone wants security, no one wants to pay for it. And the better you do it and the more preventive you work, even less people are, are willing to pay because nothing happens, right? Um, so it was super tight, tight, uh, tight margins, and we never had enough money in the company to properly invest into people, into culture, into environment. Um, so we, that was something that bothered me a lot. And no matter how big we became, it didn't change because like tight margin is tight margin. It doesn't change whether it's small or big. Um, and, uh, that was something that for me was clear whenever I'm going to start a second company, it needs to be an industry where margin allow me to properly invest into culture and into people and to an environment where people are actually walking out, being happy about the place they work. And that's also what today makes me most, most happy when I see that. Awesome. And then in 2007, you actually sold the company. Um, how did that happen? And how was that for you personally to sell your first company still at a pretty early age. Yeah. Um, I think it was, uh, it happened also by, by chance. There was another company, uh, Swiss Protection Service, um, which we merged and both together and, and I sold my part, uh, which had very similar concept than I did. We didn't know about each other, uh, but they had a very similar concept in terms of prevention and care about other skill sets uh, that are relevant for prevention and not just repression, right? Um, and so that somehow fit and I was about to, to go to university. Um, so I thought, okay, I'm, if that's going to continue growing as it grows, I'm not going to have enough time to study. 
Um, and I also, it became pretty fast, very repetitive because there is not so much innovation happening um, or possible. And then I thought, okay, coming together, making two out of one is going to be stronger. You're going to have, I thought back then we're going to have more uh, money to invest in people, which turned out not to be true because tight margin is tight margin. It's still the same market, right? Yeah. And yeah, that's when, uh, when, I saw, when I sold it. And I was, I was still working in that company for another four years, I think. Um, first operational and then also in the board. Um, until at a certain point, I realized also that my way on trying to innovate is not fitting the culture anymore. Um, and then I, then I also departed. How was it for me personally? I mean, it was on one side, it was cool. It was like success, really nice. Um, I mean, at the other thing, I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. So I was like, I mean, I think that's from now, from my perspective today, that was probably the most shitty deal I ever did. Why? Because I, uh, I had no idea on how I should evaluate that, what should be my own expectations in terms of return, in terms of um, what, I, what is the worth of what I built. So I basically just thought, yeah, actually, it's a good return from zero expectation to what I got. It was like, that's like amazing. So it was a positive experience. Uh, from now, from looking back, it was... Uh, how much money did you make on that deal? Um, that was about 70K. Okay, but that's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's cool. Uh, absolutely, it's cool. I mean, for me back then, it was basically that I, I, I built my own job um, when I was still in, in school and when I was still studying. So, uh, so for, from my perspective, back then, it was only when I can pay my own salary. That's already awesome. That's perfect. I don't, I don't need anything more. And then this came on top, so that was, uh, that was absolutely perfect. Nice. And then you moved on to your next venture. Um, it's called Easycom Services. <laughs> Tell us a bit more about that because that then also led to an exit in 2014. But how did you get involved there as co-founder? How did you get started? That was actually, I got involved. Um, I already then, I, I also founded Chirpin in 2011. And our first, our first product was focused not on meeting management nor on actually solving the corporate meeting madness and turning meetings into a productive instrument, but uh, on connecting companies and shareholders to have better communication. And out of that, um, I got in contact with some, some folks. Um, one was um, from an AGM event provider, um, Marcus. And with him, we had the idea we could actually, events could be much more digital. And there was like a lot of customer requests around some elements of digital, such as like, okay, how do I make sure that we have a way better connection between the people in, in an event and the ones that are speaking? How can we make that more interactive? Sort of Mentimeter um, or Kahoot-like. Yes. Um, back then, th this was like super innovative. So we started building a company around that. Uh, patching together some different like uh, services and products around that, around the communication between people from the moment they register, then how I know that they register, how can I connect them to each other? How can I connect them to the speaker? Um, how can I integrate like presentations with interactions of 
the public or of the people and how could we like make that more interactive? Different solutions around that. And that was basically EasyCom. And we thought, okay, let's build a company. We started building that. That was, this actually brought me, I don't know, 4K or something <laughs> because it was actually, it was uh, um, a better solution than liquidating it. Um, because the, the key point was that first we had like zero focus. We did like, yeah, I mean, we had like seven different products being a team of like four people or five people, um, having a patch of also different solutions, not really well thought through. It was just like when a customer shouted something, we were like, oh, that's cool. And somehow put that together. So that was like typical Eierleg and Evolmichsau. Also didn't do anything good, <laughs> but a lot of things. But no real focus, as you yeah. said. Yeah, <laughs> no real focus. How much of your time did you actually allocate to that company? I would say for, for maybe half a year, a day, a, a week. Okay. Um, a Saturday a week. And then pretty fast, I faded out. Um, because I, I stated from the beginning, I cannot have any operational role because I was at that time fully building up Sherpany. Um, but I was like, it's really cool. And uh, I was quite involved in the more in the go-to-market. How do we market that and how do we bring it to the market? Mm -hmm. And partially in the product, but we had the other, the other two co-founders that were there were mainly coming from the product area and from their experiences within events and within um, uh, connect or challenges that they had with connecting like the audience with uh, the speakers. Uh, so they were more involved in the product and how to get that together. But... Yeah. Is that a setup that you would recommend, you know, that you can also really start something part-time with like one Saturday a week? Or do you think that, oh, if you actually really want to start a company, you have to commit full-time from the beginning? Partially. I think uh, when you are still in that brainstorming phase in terms of what do you want to do, um, like you have an idea, but you don't know yet what is the market about and, and do, do I have competition and... And what is really the customer value I want to provide and, and all these kind of questions. I think you can do that also very good part-time because, and sometimes even better, because I think there are two key elements for that. One thing is you need to have within your core founding team, if it's one or two or three, um, yeah, one is not a team, but two or three, <laughs> um, um, you need to have these conversations and digesting part of like, okay, what do we really want to do? And to make sure that you're also aligned. Um, and the second part is you need to talk, and that's something I would advise anyone who starts a company, talk to as many people that you possibly can. Don't be afraid that anyone is gonna uh, steal your idea. Idea is 2%, 98% is execution. So if someone steals and you execute, you're gonna, you're gonna win. And if you don't execute and someone else does, be happy that someone else brought it to the market because you're going to profit from having a cool product on the market. So, um, so you can only win if you talk to people. Yeah. So I think I would, because that's like super valuable because there are two things you get input, but much more important, the more often you have to explain what you're trying to do to different people, the better and sharpener it gets in your own mind. Um, and this you cannot dense into just two weeks because you're not going to have the availability of all these people that you want to talk to or that might be relevant. 
uh, to build your network also around that topic that you're currently trying to build your enterprise or your, your startup. So I would say yes, for that part, definitely. But then at some point when you really start and you say, okay, now let's build a prototype, let's go to market, then I would absolutely advise to have like full focus on that. Because otherwise you're going to iterate too slow um, and then you're going to be frustrated because you're like half a year is gone and you're nowhere. Got it. I think that's good advice to take away. <laughs> so yeah, let's talk about Chirpany. In 2010, you actually founded the company. Um, first, I'd like to look at your team. How did you meet your co-founders? Nate, uh, back then, I worked with him together in my security company. So when, when we built that security company, we were like also planning of, of stuff and people was like super clumsy with Excel and emails. And, and we were like... Back then, like SMS blasters and these kind of things came out to, to communicate and use SMS to inform people. And we were like, this cannot, that's like super inefficient. Mm -hmm. um, so I built with him like the security planner, which was a very simple application where we basically had out of our, our, of our offer uh, or of our system where we made our offerings, uh, we were able to then plan an event and then put it that into that web application. And then basically all our staff, which were like mainly part-time people, right? They were able to just with like two clicks say where they would like to work. Nice. Um, and then we saw like, where do we have too many people, too little. And then we were like on our side also with like two clicks to, to confirm. And then they got an automated like um, report where to be, when to be there, what are the rules of engagement, what do they have to bring, and also like who brings materials and who collects the materials from one place to another and these kind of things. That was a huge, huge innovation back then, I can imagine. Yeah, it was actually, it was actually really cool. And we had a couple of years that, that uh, other security companies came and said, oh, that, that's really cool. And, I mean, nowadays we have like a lot of these tools for, for planning uh, and staff planning, but back then it was actually quite, quite cool. And it was, so I did that with him and we invested, I can't remember, three, four thousand Swiss francs, not much, for having a tool that then was actually in place for about 10 years. Um, has been worked, so we did that together. Uh, that's where I got to know him. He's, he was already working as, as, in the secu as a security, uh, but he was a technical engineer from ETH. Um, and then we started building that and I really liked the cooperation. It was like super sharp. Uh, we got aware, we got along super well. We are still super good friends today. Um, and he was, he was really good in understanding what we wanted to achieve and translate it in, uh, in an MVP, really like not over-engineering, keep it simple, keep it, keep it reduced to what you really need. Super valuable in the early yeah. days. Uh, so that's, I got to know him. So I asked him, Hey, I have this new idea. Do you want to join? And then he was like, yeah, cool. And the other one, Roman, uh, with him was interesting. We had, uh, I studied with him. He's all, he also studied law. Mm -hmm. And that was back in 2009 before we went to Siena. We both uh, made Erasmus in Siena. Uh, <laughs> and before we went to Siena, there were three of us, uh, Roman, um, Sebastian and myself. We were always a bit studying together. And Dave was also there, but Dave didn't, uh, didn't have anything to do. So shortly before that, we said, okay, let's, let's pitch a business idea to each other. So we met in that office. Uh, his father is a lawyer. He had an office at Bahnhofstrasse. So we were studying at Bahnhofstrasse. That was actually the first office of, of Sharpeny back then. Uh, 
which was super interesting when we when we started. We were like, people were like, I mean, you're a startup. Why do you have an office at Bahnhofstrasse? I mean, are you spending your money wisely? And we were like, yeah, we do. We have just Asylrecht there. <laughs> That's always helpful to start out, right? <laughs> but but so we started, we pitched that. And um, I pitched this idea of connecting companies and shareholders. <laughs> Sebi pitched um, a buffle liqueur. So bringing buffle liqueur to the market. And we were super excited about that because it sounds super cool. You, I had already all these marketing stories in my head, like buffle, and like green grass, and let's make that. <laughs> so all of that. Um, but then I tasted it. It was just horrible. It was like... Really, really horrible. <laughs> that's a deal breaker. <laughs> so I was like, no, that's not going to be. Uh, and Roman didn't pitch anything. He, he was <laughs> preparing himself. So we ended up with one idea and said, okay, that's, that's the one we're going to go. And then he joined in and that's how, how it came. And then when we were in, S in Siena, we actually, in Siena, we started building our business plan, writing our business plan and building a story. And then started, we started very clearly. We, we said, okay, if we want to bring that to market, we will have to talk to the large enterprises because they have large shareholder bases. That's going to be key. Um, so we, we were looking specifically for some business angels that can help us uh, to actually make them at least listen to what we have to say. Um, and that's then how we started. We built like short list of business angels, sent them a personal message, got invited to three, um, pitched there and two signed up. And that's how we then get, got started. How did you convince the two business angels that signed up? Just we pitched our idea and uh, I think there were two things. We pitched our idea um, and for our pitch, we already had like the brochure prepared, how that's going to look like. So they had the impression that we are way further than we are. We had like <laughs> zero line of code, but a clear idea on how we sell the product. And we also started our go-to-market before we had anything. Um, and the second part I think was that obviously they, they liked us, they liked the idea, they, they found it cool. But the second part was that we were very clear in our expectations. We knew what we wanted from them and what we need uh, to, to just get the opportunity to get started uh, with customers. And I think that clarity helped them to understand if they really can add value or not. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that helped to, to convince them. Um, and the rest, I don't know. Just chemic work. Are these the same two business angels that are now part of your board? No, no, they're not. Uh, they, they never were part of the board, but they're still uh, major investors uh, in Germany. Nice. Let's also talk a bit uh, about the market opportunity at hand. So with Sherpany, what market do you specifically tackle and how big is that market? Why was it attractive to, to go after that market? So for that, I need to, to talk a bit about a history. So we started with this shelter platform. We then, this gave us the opportunity to talk to a lot of enterprises. Mm -hmm. And after like the first 50 rejections of what you do is shit, no one needs. And it's anyway not possible. We got like the first customers and I went back to all the others that were not interested in the beginning, which had two aspects. One thing that I came back and said, hey, others do it, uh, could be interesting. And they changed their mind. I said, oh, obviously, okay, it's, Sounds interesting. Second, it, it was a second interaction. So I started building relationship. And out of that, many of them said, oh, obviously, you know how to do great apps and, and like how, how to digitize processes. Uh, but actually, to be as we have a much bigger problem. And I was like, mm, what's that problem? 
yeah, digitizing our, our meetings. <laughs> and then I was like, hmm, digitizing meeting, what exactly do you need? Yeah, what exactly do you need? Yeah, I just want to prepare my materials on my iPad. And I was like, okay, that cannot be that difficult. So in 2012, we started prototyping and in 2013, we started building a first prototype for, for just basically preparing your meetings on your iPad. And we brought that to market 2014, had like the first customers. And then we started realizing, whoa, that's actually a huge field where digitization did not happen yet. Proper digitization in terms of the entire meeting management. Um, because it's a scattered landscape from technology. You have like Word uh, for content, you have like Excel for task management, you have Outlook for calendar, you have email for communication, you have somewhere a file share to transmit the, the materials. So a scattered, it's a uh, yeah, a scattered tech landscape, which is like obvious to be consolidated in one, in one application that streamlines the entire processes. And the second part was also, it was from a user perspective, like, people struggle just to work with five different tools just to get your meetings done properly, right? So that was the, the, the start of, of our meeting management platform. Um, and then we started really building like these different pieces. And in 2015, we, we were there with like a huge opportunity in the area of meeting management where we saw, okay, that, that's actually, there's a lot to be done there. Um, way more than people said us in the beginning of just preparing on your tablet. And we have the shareholder platform where we were quite successful in Switzerland, but struggled to go international out of different reasons, out of the reasons how, how big is market opportunity really. Um, and the second part was also there is a lot of, of uh, adaptations needed for different markets because we had some dependencies to share register to other services that need to be integrated that it actually works. So in 2015, we then decided, okay, we said, okay, we looked at the different things. Back then, we did 80% of our revenue with the shareholder platform, 20% with our meeting management. We said, okay, but we believe in the meeting management. That's like the way bigger opportunity and also ultimately the way bigger um, value we can create for a customer. Because on the shareholder platform, even though we were successful in go-to-market and selling it, mm -hmm. we didn't see a steep adoption curve on the shareholder side. Why not? We don't know. Okay. And that was one of the things, even over iterating like two years, we didn't figure out how to solve that. How could we drive a higher? Because maybe, frankly, they just don't care. And if they don't maybe care, you possible. can iterate as much as you want. Yeah. They don't care. True. Um, so for us, it was clear that at some point in time, we will face the situation that we cannot deliver what we promised to our customers, which is turning shells into fans. What we can deliver is we, we also solved some compliance issues, um, some regulations or um, some regulatory needs that they had to fulfill. This we all deliver to our customers still today. Mm -hmm. But the ultimate belief in turning shelters into fans, we will not be able to deliver because they just don't adopt it. And out of that, then we took that bold decision and said, okay, no, our shell platform, we put it into maintenance mode. We continue to serve the customer we have. We don't take new customers. We don't go to market with that. And we focus all around meeting management. And then in 2015-16, we re-engineered the entire meeting management platform. So we started from scratch on a white paper, write every line of code new, wow. and really looked at the entire meeting management um, cycle. And also put like meeting management at the core 
um, of our application where we did in our first was still a mix of meeting management and document management. And that's also our competitive advantage is like all our competitors come from their legacy of a document management. And that's a complete different mindset. And meeting management documents are relevant information carrier, yes. But meeting management has at the focus, how do you solve the problems? Ultimately, how do you turn uh, a topic into an action? That's all, all you want to do. And you can do that through meetings. You can do that even outside of meetings. But that's what it's ultimately about. Um, and aligning people on top topics and so on. And, and all the things we need, what meetings are for. Um, so we, we decided to focus on that out of the big market opportunity, but also because we learned that with two products, it's just one too much. It's like you need to focus. And that was also one of the key learnings was the bigger you get, the more focus you need. I always thought the bigger you get, the more feed, the more things you can do. If you have a large company, you can do different products and different things and so on. My learning is so far is like the bigger, the more focus. Always closer, closer, closer. Sounds very counterintuitive. Yeah, completely. Yeah. But that's at least my experience. So there are like two very important points that you mentioned. You know, first, the, the tough resistance that you faced for really winning over these first clients. Everybody told you, no, not interesting. How did you deal with that and not give up? What kept you going in, in that situation? I think at the, at the fundament is the inner motivation from myself that if someone says no, I'm like, absolutely yes. Challenge accepted. Yeah, it was, it was the very first moment also or the, the initiation point why I started this conversation about turning shells into fence and this shell platform was I had a conversation with a professor at university discussing, I said, this entire AGM thing and shareholder communication could be digitized. And he said, that's not going to be possible. That's legally not possible. And I was completely different, a different opportunity. I was like, I thought said, that's absolutely possible. You're just not creative enough. So you also wanted to prove him wrong. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, for me, it was like, I said, it is possible. And I want to prove him wrong. And that was also one of the things that we said, I need to find a creative lawyer um, as one of our first business angels that helps me put down and convince that the way we designed it is actually um, legally compliant. And it is. It was just not a straight line. It's a curved line. True. <laughs> so I think this, this is also you know, a good link to your early days where you were always looking for a new challenge. So the, these challenges, they really seem to motivate you big time. Yeah, it's, that's, that's true. It's like this, this geht nicht, gibt's nicht. It's like you... It is possible. It is possible. And, and this, this continues to be, to be even a turpony. Like we had, um, about two years ago, yeah, two and a half years ago, we, we moved in. We have like an overall growth plan at turpony, which has three phases. First phase is low volume, high margin use case. Second phase is high margin, high volume. And third phase would be um, low margin, high volume. And, and that's like over our overall very simple growth plan. And we about two years ago, we moved into phase two and said, we want to make, the, we want to solve the meeting madness for the entire leadership team. Everywhere where you have formal meetings, you have this frustration of 
these meetings are not productive enough. And the biggest frustration comes that people walk out of a meeting and say, I could have done more if I would have focused on my own activities. And the reason behind that is obviously that they have a different depression, that they feel like a meeting is less productive than when they work themselves. Why is that so? Because technology helped you over the last 20 years to increase your personal productivity uh, over time. But we didn't do anything for making meetings more productive. So they did not necessarily get worse, but they did not get better. They did not get more productive, but individual productivity increased. So that's the fundamental problem we, we wanted to solve and said, okay, we want to do that for, we see that mostly on formal meetings. On, and formal meetings happens most on the leadership team because it's the leadership instrument number one. It's what gives an organization rhythm. It's their leadership rhythm and their meeting rhythms. And that's super important because rhythmic is super important to be productive um, for an organization. Um, so when we looked at that, we said, okay, we are now in phase two, which means we want to solve that for the entire leadership team. And there I had the same challenge. It was like, I knew that I will, me personally, I will have to prove to Sherpany, to the entire Sherpanese, that it is possible not to just to deliver a product for executive teams and board, but for the entire leadership team, a global leadership team. Mm -hmm. So about 18 months, I was focusing on just bringing in this one customer that is going to sign up not just for 50 users or 100 users, but that's going to sign up for 10,000 users. Because it says, I understood I want to really digitize the, forward, the, 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 the leadership team. And that was the same. It was like when we started and when I said, I'm going to make the first million dollar deal for Sherpany, uh, there was like, yeah, yeah, keep talking. <laughs> it's like, we are, we are not, we do, we do like solve the meeting problem for the executives and the source for C-level and the board and, and not for the entire leadership team. And that was the same. I, I knew that I just have, I have to prove it. Otherwise people will, will not believe it that it's possible. And once that is there, then you still have the, the challenge to bring other people there that they can do that too. Mm -hmm. uh, but at least it's no longer not possible. And how did you get to that point? Did you already sign the million yeah, dollar yeah, deal? Yeah, we did. We did this February. Uh, nice. Congrats. This, yeah, this February. So did. how did you get there? How did you walk the talk and actually make that happen? Sales. Keep going. It's like connect, uh, identify, be, be focused, identify which, which are actually targets that you possibly can. I closed the first deal um, uh, in that area to really uh, position Sherpany as meeting management for the entire leadership team, the global leadership team, so top 10% of a company and for all their formal meetings. Um, in That was mid-2018. Mid-2018. Mid um, I landed the first customer in that. But back then we really weren't uh, ready yet. So... Um, I was able to convince them and I think that was something that was already, I also sold our meeting management platform back in 2014 for the first time when we had not done anything, just on paper. And I did the same again. So um, I, want, I, I was looking for a customer and that was, that was with Swiss Re together. We wanted to roll out Sherpany for the entire leadership team. We started to, to, to make a project around it. Um, also, and that's where this agile meeting management comes from. So it's like, how do we generally not without looking at technology, but how, how do you change meeting behavior that meetings become more productive? 
And we, we iterated a lot with that together with Swiss Re on how to build that framework or this idea on, on how, how do productive meetings look like. Um, and, but our product was not supporting this idea sufficiently. So after, after uh, 12 months, the customer said, uh, I love your idea and I love the concept and everything we work together, but your tech is not supporting us sufficiently to actually practice what we right. preach to practice. Because there, this is also a very cultural thing, right? And there, the question really is like, to what extent can software help you if the culture is not right in a company? That's true, yes. And it can only do that, I think, um, yes, it can, because I think software or technology in general can be a strong change agent mm -hmm. to introduce change. It helps to have something at hand. Um, if you want people to paint blue instead of red, you need to give them at least a blue pen, right? Yeah. If they keep having red pens, they're not going to be able to paint blue. No chance. So yeah. The technology itself can be a change agent, give them something at hand that they can actually practice what you preach. Um, and then the second part is technology can help you if, if you create like benefits out that technology can deliver that reality or the previous reality could not deliver. It's like we, the biggest example is smartphones, right? Smartphones changed a lot of our behaviors because we were able to do something thanks to technology we were not, not able to do before. And then technology became a change agent to actually change behavior. Um, and you can accelerate that within enterprises with supporting services, such as how do you communicate change, how do you uh, reduce resistance to change, and so on. But at the core, it is the technology itself that nowadays is most often the change agent, which means that technology needs to really embrace a certain behavior um, that you believe is fruitful to make, in our case, meetings more productive. Got it. Um, so to that extent, I, I, uh, I think technology is an important change agent. Just to come back shortly. So we did that with Swiss Re, but then after 12 months, um, it, it, we discontinued. They discontinued using Sherpany as, as their technology. They continued with practicing uh, Asia meeting management and so on. But um, so to your question, how do you get to that customer? Don't give up. Uh, I mean, at, when I was with Swiss Re, I saw that very early that this might happen. So I continued searching for, for others, um, trying to build connections. And ultimately, I think the key element is talk about your vision. You need to find a customer that believes in your vision or where you can connect on a, on a visionary level and say, hey, that's how we believe meetings should run to be productive. And only then talk about how you can help them to get there. And I think that's way more important than you don't need to sell your product because your product is going to be different every month, hopefully better every month moving forward. Right. Yeah. But the idea where you want to bring your customer to, that's where the customer needs to buy in. Um, and that's also where real value happens, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just the product. It's like, how is the world going to look like once the customer works together with you and you are together going to be successful? How is going to this world? How is that world going to look like? And the better you can explain that, the more power you're going to generate within a customer to say, okay, yeah, let's do it. No matter the internal resistance, let's do it. Right. 
What was the vision that you draw with Swiss Life? Yeah, for uh, Swiss Re. Swiss Re. Um, th the same that I did now with the customer that signed uh, <laughs> in February. It, it, it is, so our vision is, is a world where every meeting counts. We want to bring our customers into a world where every meeting counts because I, we believe fundamentally that if you invest time in a meeting, everyone who is there should have the right to walk out and say, have that meeting counted to me, not just to the enterprise, but to me. Mm -hmm. um, and from that vision, we started building a framework around how productive meetings look like or should look like. Um, and this framework is called Ascent Framework. And it basically describes how productive meetings need to happen. What do you need to do to, to make meetings productive? Like Scrum describes, how do you make sure that software actually gets to the customer? <laughs> how, what do you have to practice to make sure that this happens? It's the same like Ascent. Ascent is nothing else than a framework describing that. And by putting that like into a framework and really bringing it crystal clear on how does process looks like, how does the people behavior should look like, how should technology look like that supports that, um, that helped us to really shape this clarity on what do you need to do to practice that actually every meeting counts. And then we started focusing everything we do towards that picture, towards that end goal, like the way we develop our software, the way we develop our supporting services, the way we communicate, um, all, all pulling and pushing into that direction and enabling then ultimately to customer to understand yeah, how, how are meetings going to happen once I successfully implemented Sherpany or ultimately uh, assimilated Sherpany and with it also this new way on how to do meetings more productively. Before we continue with the show, we'd like to introduce you to Swisspreneur's main partner, Clara Business, the digital all-in-one solution for small businesses. Whether it be marketing, sales, customer care, or accounting, Clara is just what the doctor ordered. Any SME employee can tell you that managing internal processes manually and on paper is just about the silliest way of wasting your time. That's why Clara digitizes everything. An easier, hassle-free workflow means you and your company get to spend time on what really matters, your core business. Go to clara.ch to find out how your business administration can be simpler, faster, and more efficient. And now, on with the show. And then it comes probably quite natural that then, then they realize, oh, we actually do need an enabler, a software that supports us along that journey to get to that vision, right? Absolutely. I mean, software, is, as I mentioned before, is, is an important change agent. And when we think about our growth phase two even more, if we want to have like a low, a high margin, high volume application, you, the technology needs to take care much more on this uh, change part. Because if you want to, if you want to, to change the behavior of 10,000 people around the globe in how they practice their meetings, you're going to have a hard time if you want to explain one-on-one, -on -one, right? So you, you somehow need to build that into, into a product that is scalable and really helps to drive people into that direction. And that's also the biggest, I think the biggest change that happened internally for Sherpany from phase one to phase two was that a lot of this thinking, how do I make a person change habits towards more productive meetings? How do I drive that out of the product? 
where we did that in phase one, when you have a low volume, it's super easy to drive that out of services. But that's not scalable um, for the customer. From our perspective, it's still, I mean, we can increase our sales, uh, our service department. But from a customer perspective, it's not. If, if, because if, if he buys in, he wants to scale that within like 24 months. I want that all my formal meetings run that way. Sure. Which means then you need to make sure that people internally become ambassadors and, yes. and, and the technology takes them at hand and pulls them into the right direction. And as you described, sometimes you also have to take a step back. You know, when a big client is not renewing their contract, how did that feel that moment? Like, and, and what did he actually do and take away from it when, you know, Swiss Re came and said, okay, we're not going to extend that contract. We like your software. It's all great, but it's not like what we were looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Or it, it actually not just what we're looking for. It is not supporting sufficiently what you preached us to do. You know, that's even more intense. So, yeah. Yeah. So that was, yeah. I mean, that was super tense, but it's like, it's a bit of slap in your face, obviously. But it's a wake-up call. It's like two things. First, what is beautiful is that they continued going the road of implementing that vision um, how, and this practice on how to do meetings more productively, mm -hmm. which is a huge confirmation in terms that the direction is correct. Yeah. Um, and the second part is just that you have to look into the mirror and say, hey, we didn't, we didn't do our job. We didn't do our job. We didn't do our job um, fast enough into building the product in a scalable manner that it really supports this, uh, this way on practicing and how, it, how to do meetings. And I think it helped us a lot. I mean, for, for us, it was super healthy for the company because it's like an outside push. Um, and I think it, it also helped us to, to clarify and to better write down. So when, when we started with with Swissry, we didn't have yet this Ascent framework. We had it in our heads, but not really like properly lined out. Um, and we learned a lot with thanks to Swissry and together with Swissry, what matters to make meetings more productive in detail. Like we had this general idea, but like get, get specific. What specifically do you, which habits did you need to, to, to do you need to adopt as, as people as meeting participants as meeting chairs as meeting organizers um, how exactly do you have to adapt or evolve your processes that meetings become more productive and so on so these like the, the, the details and there we learned a lot with history and we're super thankful for that and hopefully one day we can go back and say hey uh, our product is there now too and I mean we did since then we did a huge leap in really connecting um, our product um, and also helping our users to really adopt towards this more productive way on how to do formal meetings. How do you also handle this challenge with your team? You know, um, if you lose a big client, um, they of course know and realize that. And they also hear about the big vision that you probably draw also as, as founder and CEO. How do you make sure that you don't lose the motivation of your team, of your people and still keep up a good spirit if something like that happens? I think that starts way earlier. That starts with the, I think with, with the point that how much do you allow try, error, failure, innovation within your culture? Mm -hmm. And how much can a, can a company and a company culture absorb that? Because it, it always connects to frustration. No one is 
trying something new or is building uh, or having an innovation, try to build something to fail. No one does that. So it's always connected with frustration. And how much can you deal with that? And also how, how much do you position it as a failure versus a necessary step for innovation? Um, I think that's one thing that starts way earlier. The second part is um, that you just have to be super self, brutally self-critical and just say, yes, I, we didn't make it. It's, and, and like be clear on what it means. So for us, it meant that it was a strong confirmation of the direction we want to go and of how, what do you have to do to make meetings more productive. And it was a step, uh, a wake-up call in terms of our product does not support that sufficiently that a customer really believes that our product can be the change agent they need, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> and then you have to be honest with yourself and say, okay, that's the situation, that's how it is. Uh, we're not going to give up. We're going to find, uh, we're going to move forward. We're going to find another cl client that really gonna, is going to apply that globally for the entire leadership team. Um, and we're going to do our homework. And then you do step by step. And I think one of the points of the challenges we had was that we didn't invest enough time to connect, to, to connect where we are today and where this, where ideal meetings or how ideal meetings happen and that everyone, especially the, the, the POs and UI, UX, everyone who is, doing, is in the design process of the product feels empowered enough and confident enough to outline for themselves the baby steps that need to happen towards that direction and to have that in the right order. And that's something we are we're catching up. How do you do that? First, the first thing was it took us a while to actually realize what was the problem. And <laughs> uh, that's probably the most important part, like think enough about what is really the problem. Um, and then we do it with generally with our OKR system to put focus on that. Um, and then second is communication. Communicate it help people to digest and to really think it through and be able to express this vision of how productive meetings look like in their own words. The more they can explain it in their own words, the more they will have assimilated it. And then it's also getting easier to really identify the gaps that we still have today. And we're going to have gaps still in two years from now because Sure, that's we're going to move right? forward. That's, yeah. that's, that's how it's going to happen. That's, that's how innovations happen. Also, our same framework in two years from now is going to be even more specific than it is today because hopefully we will continue learning and not believe that we are perfect now. No, we're not. There's a, a lot to do. Um, but I think like in the, in the big shapes, it's, we have clarity. Another thing that I would like to talk about is uh, the part of fundraising and, and money in, in your story. I know that you don't share uh, too much about the amount that you raised, but uh, if you look at Crunchbase, for example, there it says that you raised 1.8 million before your recent uh, growth financing round. That doesn't really seem to be a lot of money. So it's also not fully correct, but okay, I thought so. <laughs> yeah. Was um, it more than that? Or? Yeah, it was. It was more than that. Okay. It was about uh, four and a half. Okay, got uh, it. That we fundraised till the, the the latest funding round. I think there. There are two things. One thing is that we were 
sales driven very early on. I mean, we start, started selling always our products before we even had it, um, which is one, one element of how to reduce the need of, of external funding. The flip side of the coin is you run the risk to get too much dependent on customers. In what way? In what way that especially um, we were l lucky enough that in these early days we had we had uh, customers not too big and from the beginning on a couple of them. Mm -hmm. But if you have one big customers in the beginning, you're going to build the wrong product. Yeah. They come and say, we want this, we want yeah. that, and then you customize it. Yeah, and you, you believe, you know, you believe that and they will always say what we do is how the entire world works. And this job is yours. You have to figure out how the world works. And it's one input source, but only one. A good one, but it's only one. And you have to, diver that, to diversify your input sources to build, to really draw your own picture, how the world looks like and how the world works. And how true that picture is, is also subjective, but at least it's from your own uh, digestion and from your own view on having different sources. Um, so, but, but out of that, I think we did two things. One thing was that, um, so very early we started with sales. We were able to, um, that was about 2012, 2012, 2013, uh, where we were super short on cash. Um, and we had basically no time to make a funding round. So I said, I just have to find a solution with customer. So I was able to, to create a deal with five different customers at the same time for a three years upfront contract with them. Um, so we, we secured uh, 1.5 million through, through disagreements with customer. And that gave us again a bit more run, a runway to then make our funding round. Um, and, that's, and, and, and out of that, we continued obviously to try to focus always to generate uh, revenues out of, uh, out of customers and to sell first build after. Yeah. I think that's a very strong mentality that really comes through well in this podcast that you share. Uh, sell first, build after. And I think that's also good validation that you have there without investing too much time on the wrong path, right? Absolutely. I think it's not, I think it's important. This is not true for every company, right? Um, so you have to figure out what is really the value that you want to create. So I mean, we know Facebook, right? It was absolutely not true for Facebook. They said, our value is the user base. So we focus on that. Um, and you, you're going to have different, um, especially digital business models where revenues are not, not your main value that you generate within the company, but your value is somewhere else. And trying to get clarity on what is actually the value that you create within your company and then focus on that and put the other one second, that's, that's super important to be ultimately successful. Uh, we are, I was just discussing now with another um, startup that they asked me to, to join the board there. Um, and in my first interactions, we were actually exactly clarifying they had like two different things and they were like trying to build revenues, but actually building the community is way more important. Um, there you have then to somehow some, at some point admit and say, okay, if it's community, then let's make sure that we have our fundraising under control and let's build a community. Sure. If revenue is, let's make sure that you are close enough to customers that you build something they want so you can generate re uh, revenues. So I think this, the, to clarify that or to try to clarify that as early as possible helps you 
again, to increase your focus. Absolutely. That makes sense. Um, one thing that we also once talked about at the Founders Dinner were some of your sales tricks. Um, also, one example that you gave there is how you handled the request for discounts on your software. Uh -huh. um, I think your team at your office is very happy about your negotiations there. Can you tell us a bit more how you handle discount requests from, from companies? I mean, obviously, uh, it took me a while to, to understand that. But the, the key point is, again, if you, if you sell to enterprises, you have to understand they have purchasing offices. They do nothing else than making sure to get the biggest value for the smallest amount of money. That's their job. So they're good in doing that. And, but the, the way they do it is always the same. They first understand what the market gives and classical RFI RFPs or try to understand what is out there in the market, what could you be in the market value. And then when you go down in the sales process, they will try to put you in a box. They will say, you, are, you have this and this and this and this functionalities. The others have that too. These are these five functionalities you don't have, and they try to put you exactly in a box. Why? Because the moment you let you fit it in that box, they can start playing with that boxes. They can say, your box is anyway already just 80% full of what potentially could be full. And then they say, yeah, but the other one is 100% and it's cheaper, so you should be cheaper and only 80% and then so on. So that's how the game works, I think. And then coming to discounting, so you have to understand that that's what they do first. And in parallel, what they will always say it's too expensive. So if you start already discussing pricing and also, yeah, yeah, we can do something and we can make some discounts, at the level where they are still actually focused on putting you in the box, you already lose points that they don't count. Because for them, negotiation comes only after. Okay. After so they that's, found the right box for you. That's, that's all just you gave up on your, on your value. So the first thing is make sure you don't fit in the box. Like be as edgy as possible. How do you make sure that? How do you make that? First, they will try, so they will collect the different functionalities all the different vendors possibly have and say 100% is having all these functionalities. Right. And you have to go against that and say, that's absolute bullshit. You can make comments on Teams as you can make on WhatsApp, as you can make on Word 365. A common functionality is not value at all. It depends on what you want to do in which situations. So connecting functionalities to support a business process, that's what makes a product. So adding functionalities that are not relevant for the business process don't add any value. So let's not discuss that. Always bring them back on the solution. They will try to pull you down on functions and, and features and functionalities, and you have to pull back and say, we talk about a solution. What is the problem you're trying to solve? Making your meetings more productive. What do you need for that? A solution, which connects different functionalities in an intelligent way to get your job done easier, faster, better. And any functionalities that you're going to collect and put on your lists for your boxes somewhere else that don't support that are not relevant. So don't hold that against me if I don't have that. I have it by design. I don't have it by design because they are distraction, they don't increase value. That's one thing. And then the other thing is, of course, try to point out like elements that you have that no one else has mm -hmm. to say you cannot compare True. and push back and say, ultimately, you don't, as a, as a vendor, you don't have to decide whether this is valuable for the customer or not. You're convinced it is. That's why you have it. Yeah. 
And there you have to push back and say, hey, you have to decide for yourself, is that valuable or not? And that's why we believe it is because it makes meeting more productive. And that's why I'm going to deliver you higher productivity in meetings for that price. And I'm sure I can do that. But you have to decide for yourself if that value or not. If it's not, then let's not talk. Then let's stop wasting time. Sure. Um, so that's number one. Let yourself not be put in that box. And then once at some point you're going to come into negotiation where it's about, okay, give me discounts. And I think there is two things. First thing is like always try to push them a bit out of their comfort zone. Like discounts, sure, no problem. We can give you plus 10%. We can go always go up, you know? It's like, then it's like, uh, are you joking or what? No, I mean, we can, if we can go down, we can also go up, right? Um, second is like when they try to discount and also try to reduce the value and say, okay, if you want to pay less, then you obviously want, don't want to get the maximum out of your meetings, right? You want to decrease the potential increase of productivity for your meetings, correct? And then they're like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. Yet then you need the entire solution, right? And that's the price. So try to connect it to the value that you generate. Um, um, and then at some point, you're going to give them some discounts because the, ultimately that, that's the game you play to try to keep them on the solution and value for the company. Mm -hmm. But their job is ultimately to get some, to increase, to, to decrease the costs, right? So if you don't give them anything, they're going to have a hard time to justify their own position sure. within the yeah. company. They are also getting measured by that, right? They're getting measured by that. So if you don't give them that at some point, it's, they lose their job, right? Or they are inclined to go for a solution that gives them that because that's, justifying their job so at some point you need to give that and i think that what what comes there at hand is what we practice is like discount is completely the wrong name what i give you is okay i leave some money on the table in cash then give it me differently you know because they're going to be measured on the reduction on the cash price but then give me something in in, in exchange so tit for tat if I give you 3%, um, 3% equals 7,000 Swiss francs a year, what do I get for that? Do I get referrals? Do I get uh, Coptera reviews? Do you make an event? Uh, can you like make a press release about that we work together? Be creative. Um, and there, it's important that you give some ideas what that could be. Mm -hmm. But he wants from you discounts. So play the ball back and say, okay, then you have to tell me what you can give me in return. Yes. You know? So you're always on eye level. And then the third thing, the third element is for discounts, it's like you have to make it, you have to, to, make, to build a curve. So usually a procurement officer is going to, somehow try to make this play three times. Mm -hmm. um, so what he, what, what he needs to understand is that he's reaching a level, uh, a minimum, which is like, first you get, I give you 3%, then I give you another 1.1 and then another 0.3, which means you realize, okay, now with 0.3, I'm, I, it's like the curve is flat. It's, it's, I can do that for another 10 times. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to win anything. 
because that's how the curve of my vendor looks like. Um, if you do like five and another five and another five or three, three, three. Oh, there's should... more. <laughs> yeah, even more. But yeah. if you do three, 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 why should he stop? Exactly. So, oh, there's more that I can yeah. get. So I can I, just I continue. continue. Every right. time I iterate, I get three, three percent. So let's continue. It's obvious, right? That's... So I think it's a bit like really understanding their situation and, and not just fight against it because you want to give them something because they, they need to be successful true too. And it's also fair. So if you say, yeah, I don't know, we say, okay, we increase volume that you then get, get a better price. That's okay. You know, that's, that's then tit for tat. I think that's a very, very valuable experience to take away these lessons that you just shared. That's super helpful. And I can relate to many of them where I actually made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> so uh, I would probably write that down and say, okay, that's the game plan for the, ne game plan for the next uh, negotiation session. And I think what, what you see with many salespeople is that they somehow are afraid of the pricing question and, and uncomfortable with negotiations. And that's, ve that's your very personal thing. You need to overcome that. You need to enjoy it. You need to enjoy the pricing question, embrace it and say, the moment they're going to ask for the price, you have, you're super successful because, which means they already see value. Otherwise they wouldn't even ask for the price. Right. Yeah. And it's the moment where you can give that value a dimension, you know, before that you just talk about value that you create, but you have to give it a dimension. And that's your opportunity to show how important you are for the customer. And the smaller the first number is that you say, the smaller your value. So that's like something I, tr I embrace and try to practice a lot. It's like the first number you're going to say, it's always going to be the biggest number you're ever going to say. So if you have a customer that uses it for 10,000, don't start with, yeah, a user a month is 90 bucks. Make the calculation in your head and say, annually, it's going to be about 1.2 million. And that's how, and then start explaining, that's how the pricing works, blah, blah, blah. But let's make sure that the anchor is clear. It's 1.2 million because the first number you're going to say is your valuation of the value you're going to create. And there you need to be bold and clear and comfortable. And because you create, you will create a lot of value for that customer. Let's make clear that you have clarity on that, that you both understood it's going to be 1.2 million that you're going to invest and 7.5 million that you're going to spare because you have more productive meetings. Sounds simple. Yeah. <laughs> How do you get to that level? You know, with that level of comfort and, and also security where you say, hey, we can actually argue from this position of strength. Was it always that way or how do you get to that point? Uh, absolutely not. I think it's, it's the more you do it and I think the more you understand the other side. I mean, talk to... Look in your network where you have someone that works in, pro uh, in procurement mm -hmm. and talk to them because that you really get the comfort of understanding their situation because they also just want to do the best thing. They, wanna, they want to do their job well. They don't want to hinder their customer of purchasing the right things to be more productive, but do it at a good price. Yeah. And, and, and once you understand that and also that they, they have to do their job and it's good that they do their job and challenge you on that, um, then you start understanding the other perspective. And I think that's super important to, to, to go down that road. The other part is, up, is obviously the more contracts you have closed in your life, uh, the more comfortable you become because the more you know that you actually, you are 
representing the value that you are asking for, you know. Right. And that is to a certain extent um, trainable, but to a certain extent, you just need to make this experience. And that's, I think, one of the big challenges in enterprise sales is like, because sales cycles are long, um, you have even experienced salespeople that get very defensive on that topic because they're like, I'm here since six months, I haven't closed any contract. I, I need to close a contract and so on. So they think that they can close a contract faster by being more generous on the, on the price part. And reality is it's the opposite. If you, if you go down the road of devaluating through reduction of the price, the value you create, at some point the customer is not gonna believe you anymore that you actually solve a real problem. Because why, why would you give it that cheap if, if it really solves the problem, if it really creates value, right? And I think that's the, the point where you have, you have to be aware that that's just the game it is. It takes, it takes a while, enterprise sales takes a while, and you're only gonna succeed by confidence, not by being defensive. Very good take home message. Let's also look at the current state where you stand with Sherpany in uh, one of the latest startup ticker articles. Uh, they wrote that you have 350 plus customers already using your software. And you recently also raised a growth round uh, from Cadence Growth Capital. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder, you know, where you stand today. What's next for Sherpany? Where do you want to go? So for us, it's clear it's uh, Europe. We have a Europe first uh, focus. Um, and we really want to become the number one um, provider when it comes to increasing productivity of formal meetings. If you have a meeting madness at your enterprise, come to Sherpany. We are happy to share our knowledge and we are happy to help you to implement that knowledge. Um, and that's what, that's what we're going to use for. So moving into that phase two, it's really um, implementing and executing our phase two growth plan. That's what we raised the money for um, from Cadence, as you mentioned, and, and a, a Swiss entrepreneur that built a company who did a, a major stake in, in that uh, investment round. Um, majority is going to go into sales and marketing uh, and another part into product. Um, and ultimately, it's really bringing that idea of how productive meetings look like to the market. So as I mentioned, we now finalized this ascent framework, which is really describing how do you make meetings more productive. Um, this is for free. We give that out because we believe the more that are going to have more productive meetings, the closer we get to our vision. And Sherpany is the provider that helps you best and with the biggest experience to implement um, that practice or this new way on how to do meetings and to make them more productive. And that's what we are focused on in making sure that in Europe, everyone who suffers from the corporate meeting madness knows that there is a solution out there that can help and enable you to experience, to have positive experiences with meeting also in a corporate environment. I think also your company is now also like 10 years old or turning 10 years old this year. But what is your like, you know, game plan in terms of the, the company's future? Do you plan to do an exit one day because you also have investors on board? Do you plan to do an IPO? What are your thoughts on that? And for us, this is a secondary effect. Um, we are fully dedicated and focused on our vision of building a world where every meeting counts. Mm -hmm. And to get there, we do what is necessary um, and to build that world and to, to solve once and for all, hopefully, the corporate meeting madness. And so therefore, 
I, I don't, we don't have a clear exit plan. I mean, it can absolutely make sense at some point in time to enter into a strategic relationship uh, with a bigger player. Um, we are, we are close. We have close connections to Microsoft because we have, we integrate into the Microsoft uh, world mm -hmm. um, where we cover the, the entire part of formal meetings, which they don't cover, um, which is fitting perfectly. Um, we are obviously interesting for for any kind of document management systems that want to level up their their game into supporting specific processes and meetings is one of the most practiced process in an in an enterprise right um so there it can absolutely make sense especially when we think about like 10 years from now maybe when we say we really want we we make a shift to really go global um and make the next step from europe first to earth first um, then it could absolutely make sense to just scale faster. I mean, one day your investors also want to see a return, right? Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean an exit. I mean, that you can have like, I think that's something that has changed in most recent years, that you have way more uh, liquidity in the market and you have way more private equity companies, but also later stage VCs that offer secondary um, possibilities. And this can always be a possibility for an investor that want to go out at a certain point in time because he has to or he wants to, um, that he can that that he can be replaced uh, by someone else that fits maybe better the stage you are in. Then got it. Yeah, makes sense. So to conclude this episode, we would like to hear your thoughts on gadgets and the resources that you can recommend to our listeners. Are there any books, blogs, podcasts, newsletters, or also gadgets that you use? Uh, and can recommend? Um, I mean, for me, the, the number one thing is Blinkist. Uh, I'm way too lazy to read entire books. Uh, so I listen a lot of Blinkist um, for short summaries. And therefore, I mean, I, I have, I'm subscribed to about 45 different newsletters. Um, and every newsletter that offers podcasts is way higher ranked for me than, <laughs> than reading. Nice. Um, because... I, I do two things. One thing is that I, I listen to, to a lot of these kind of podcasts and, and uh, audiobooks um, and I love to discuss them because for me, real digestion of content happens when, when, it, when I can discuss it with someone. Um, so that's also cool when you know some people that probably list to the same things and then, and then you can discuss. Do you have like a favorite discussion round that you attend on a regular basis? Um, not really. I, I mean, there, there are two different circles. I have a circle that was actually formed out of Venture Leaders program uh, um, back in 2012 when we were with Venture Leaders in Boston. There's a group of four uh, entrepreneurs nice. that we were all sharing the same room. <laughs> and we're meeting like every month uh, for lunch where we discuss uh, different topics. And it's interesting. We, we all evolved a bit more or less the same. So uh, the, the topics change, but we always have similar issues, challenges, things that we would like to discuss. Great. Um, and then the other thing is that, I, that I'm close also to, to people out of, of ETH, of Robotics Lab, of, of AI Labs, just to discuss my ideas uh, and also to educate myself on technology and what happens, because these are the two areas that I'm most interested in. Awesome. And then my third part, which has nothing to do with that, is I'm super interested in um, uh, the next generation uh, construction. 
construction houses because I think that we're still building houses for the pre-corona phase and not post-corona phase. <laughs> so I want to make there an impact. And I think it's like in construction, we have so many opportunities to build CO2 negative, but we don't capture it and we don't do it. And that's just stupid. So we're curious to see what comes from you in that area then. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to go back a bit to my very early days where I was working in construction. Probably, yeah. <laughs> connect, connect it with, a, with an idea of living and working environments in the post-corona area. Tobias, thank you so much for taking the time. That was a lot of fun taking us on your entrepreneurial journey. And we see you in the next episode. Thank you very much. It's nice talking to you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.